Good morning. Please be seated. And great to see you all. Isn't it great, by the way, to have Dan Fager back? Dan and Jill uh, had an eight-week sabbatical, and, um, and I've also had a few weeks off from, from preaching. I've been praying and studying and having some vacation time, time with family, time with the Lord, time reconnecting with staff, and uh, it is really great to be back. My heart is full. I love seeing all of you and greeting all of you, So, and I'm really excited for this series. This has been brewing in my own soul and mind for some time, this vision of becoming a spiritual beacon church, and what does it mean for us to become a house of prayer in the city of Chicago? What does it mean to become a house of prayer for the city of Chicago that serves Chicago? Uh, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, this from Isaiah 56, so you can go ahead and turn there. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, a house of prayer. If we're going to become a spiritual beacon, uh, as pictured in Isaiah by the Lord, what does it mean for us to become a house of prayer for all peoples, for all nations? There's a danger and an opportunity for every single church in the world. There's a danger, and there's an opportunity. No one's immune from the danger, and no one's kept from the opportunity. The danger for every church, every small group, every cluster of Christians, whether large or small, is to become a house of pettiness. We could become a house of pettiness. In the house of pettiness, Christians become nitpicky, nipping at each other for grievances long unforgiven, petty preferences that aren't being met, petty theological bickering that keeps people divided. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to try to drink from a water fountain that has barely any water pressure in it, and you're pressing the button down as hard as you can, you're trying to sip from it, but it's like, like lead-filled water is like leaking out of it. Houses of pettiness are like that water fountain. There's almost no life, and everyone is sort of fighting over the resources, fighting over the power, nitpicking and divided. This was certainly true of a small group of Christians. Uh, they were Moravian Christians in the early 1700s. Uh, and at the time, they were escaping religious persecution in Moravia, which is now the Czech Republic, not far from where our missionaries, Tyler and Laura Patty, are serving with Josiah Venture. So these Moravian Christians, they found a place where they could escape in Saxony, which is modern-day Germany. There was a devoted Christian uh, landowner named Count Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf, who himself had been asking God to bring to him persecuted minorities, persecuted Christians, that he could give them a place to live. And sure enough, they started knocking on his door going, we got to get out of Moravia, can you give us a home? <clears throat> and so they, they escaped, they got past the, like, the initial wave of, of persecution by escaping, and they founded this little colony. And pretty soon, this little colony became a house of pettiness. They started bickering. They started 
uh, dividing with one another. This family upset about something with that family, and, and, and this family is more doctrinally pure than that family. And Slowly, the pettiness just divided everybody, soured the waters. And that's when Count Zinzendorf saw the opportunity, the opportunity that every church has, the opportunity that every small group has, every family has, Anywhere where Christians gather, there is an opportunity. Count Zinzendorf saw it, and it's for the house of pettiness to become a house of prayer. So he drew up what he called a brotherly agreement. A brotherly agreement based on a a document from the early church that he stumbled onto, which was a vision for how this order would operate under Jesus Christ. And so he, based on that, and based on his reading of the New Testament, he drew up what he called a brotherly agreement And then he went house by house, just house by house, going, what about this vision of becoming a house of prayer? Could you you get on to this? Could you you buy into this? Could things change here in our colony? So what was that brotherly agreement? We can read about the essence of it in the first two verses of our text. The first two verses of our text in Isaiah 56, 1 and 2, Thus says the Lord, this is an oracle from God, something he cares about. Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man and woman and church who does this, and the son and daughter of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it, and keeps his or her hand from doing any evil. What are these verses calling us to? What's the Lord God calling every house of pettiness to, every church to, every son and daughter to? In short, it's a call to renew our love for God and renew our love for each other. To renew our love for God and renew our love for neighbor. The first and second greatest commandments according to Jesus Christ, the summary of the whole law, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Look with me in verse 1. This is unpacked here. Keep justice. Keep justice. This is love of neighbor. The word uh, for justice here is mishpat. In Hebrew, mishpat. This is a comprehensive word. It means a uh, right relationship with your neighbor. Um, Mishpat refers to kind of true restoration where you have, if you've wronged your neighbor, if you've done them injustice, that you truly make amends, that your relationship with them is made right, that there's mercy and justice mingling together to overcome the wrongs that have passed between you. You've forgiven those who've sinned against you. You've received the forgiveness offered to you. And then you take care of your neighbor. You take care of the poor. You really seek their good. You go out of your way to outdo them in love. This is what Mishpat is referring to, this sense of justice, loving your neighbor. But then he says, do righteousness. Do righteousness. This is love of God, being in a comprehensively right relationship with him, where there's nothing in between you and God anymore. All the sins, all the, all the uh, ways that we've broken God's law, all the way that we've broken God's heart, we've made amends with him. We've actually sought his heart, and with all of our heart, we say, I want to keep your covenant. I want to keep your commandment, and I no longer want to live independently from the life of God. 
You're reading the scriptures for nourishment. You're, you're praying. You're, everything that you do at your home, at your work, is devoted to God. It doesn't mean that you're living perfectly. It doesn't mean, but you are saying, Lord, hey, look, here's my imperfect life. I don't want to do it apart from you anymore. So teach me your ways and show me your paths. I want the wisdom of God. You're the everlasting God. I'm a mere mortal. I'm a sinner. So make me a saint. That's what someone doing righteousness means. And then uh, God himself promises, for my salvation will come. In verse two, my salvation will come and my, sorry, verse one, and my righteousness will be revealed. God's on the move. His kingdom's coming. He's gonna do beautiful and amazing things with those who are united with him to renew the face of the earth. Now, that was the basics of the brotherly agreement that Count Zinzendorf went through like, hey, look, can't we do this together? And do you know what happened? Just one by one, the, the people started saying yes. This family said yes. This person said yes. Like, we'll do this together. We'll, we'll devote ourselves afresh to God. We'll devote ourselves afresh to loving our neighbor. And so they came together for a communion service in May of 1727 became known later as the Moravian Pentecost because as they all came together, they started confessing their sins. They started, you know, when you, you confess the peace of Christ with each other, they, were, they really took that seriously. They were, they were, they were forgiving offenses and, and, and hard feelings they had towards one another, and they were confessing their sins and confessing their lack of devotion to God, and the Spirit of God fell in their gathering and fell in this communion service in a way that history would never forget. It turned the village inside out. It was, a, it was a revival. Dead things came to life. Their village, which was bickering and, and divided and like the little, the, the, you know, the drinking fountain where the water's barely coming out, it just became this gushing fountain of the spirit of God, renewing the face of the earth, renewing their village. Um, families started forgiving one another. They started to outdo each other in, in uh, kindness and love and hospitality. Um, petty issues got resolved. They, they openly uh, continue to confess their sins against God and neighbor. And spiritual winter for the Moravians became a spiritual summer, a spiritual summer. As they sought the presence of God in prayer, it was sweet to their taste. Verse two contains God's promise over anyone who follows their example, anyone who devotes themselves uh, to God and neighbor afresh. Blessed is the man and blessed is the woman, blessed is the church who does this. Blessed is the son and daughter of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his or her hand from doing any evil. Blessed are all those who seek an integrity between love of God and love of neighbor, that there's not some artificial, sacred, secular division between our prayers and our practices, that we will make things right economically with each other. We will make things right as, uh, as it relates to our sexual relationships. We will make things right with God. We will make things right with neighbor, and we will seek the good of our neighbor. We will seek the glory of God. Blessed are all of those who seek that vision. It's like Psalm 1 describes, blessed uh, is the man or woman who you know, doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but day and night meditates on the law of God. They'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season. Blessed. Isaiah's drawing on this Psalm 1 imagery. Blessed. You'll be like this tree. We, uh, our bishop recently, um, he had this picture for our diocese. It was like a bird's eye view 
of our whole region, where all of the churches were growing like that. They were growing like trees in their cities where they, where they are, in the suburbs where they are, the rural areas where they are. And these trees, they're growing so full of love. They're growing so full of the life of God. They're growing so full of this brotherly agreement, love of God and neighbor, justice and righteousness, that, the, uh, that as it, the trees grow, the roots start to break up some of the concrete around them. And some of the hardness and some of the preconceived notions of what church could be are starting to break, give way to these trees that are growing. So who gets to be a part of this vision? Who gets to be a part of a house of prayer that's no longer a house of pettiness? Just church people? But people raised in the faith, you know, people who understand the creed, people who get, you know, Jesus died for your sins and they're not weirded out by the blood of the lamb and things like that. Is that who gets to be a part of the house of prayer? People who've been praying their whole life? People who were saved in college, maybe? God intends to include the most unlikely of peoples in the house of prayer. He calls us not to just be a house of prayer, but to become a house of prayer for all people. You could translate this to a house of prayer for all nations. Um, people have all kinds of reasons for staying out of church. People have all kinds of reasons for, for not getting involved in religious activities. They say this, I'm not the religious type. My spiritual needs are, are, are there, and I'm a spiritual person, but my needs are met elsewhere brunch, yoga, uh, going on a walk in the woods. Or they say this, I've done things that make me unacceptable to God. God would never accept me. He knows everything I've done. Or maybe this, I've just got too many practical problems right now to focus on the impractical activity of prayer and being involved in a church. I've just got too many problems. People say this to themselves all the time, whether they speak it aloud or not. But also the thing is that we people who are comfortable being in church on Sunday, we think this about them too. We go, they have too many, pro they're not really a religious, they're not really, they wouldn't ever understand like how much God loves them. They're too hard, they're too closed off. They would never get it, they would never be interested. They're not the type. We just go, they're just not the type to come into the house of God. Maybe you've thought that about yourself and maybe you've thought it about someone that you know. Ah, they just want nothing to do with Jesus. So Isaiah brings two objections to the surface in verse three. He wants to surface these objections uh, and, and let the Lord speak into them. Verse three says this, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Just a common objection, you're not an Israelite, you have no idea what the covenant is, you have no idea kind of um, what it's like to keep Sabbath, and you're just like, ah, I'm not the type. Isaiah says, no, 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 no. Don't let foreigners say that. There might be a culture barrier. Um, there might be a, a, a learning curve. There might be some language interpretation things that, but don't let them say this because it's not true. People who eat different food, people raised with different values, people worshiping a different deity, people speaking a different language, don't say to yourself, God wants to keep me separate from his people. Second objection Verse three at the end, and let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Now, uh, the, the people of God at the time Isaiah was writing 
had such a high view of marriage, we might even call it idolatrous, that they really kind of worshiped marriage and giving birth to children. You know, some of them maybe just held it up as an idol to the point where they would look at someone who was unable to have children and go, they're less than a person because the fullness of personhood is getting married and having kids. And as you know, that view still exists to this day with people who consider themselves the church type, that maybe the fullness of life is to be married and to have kids. God doesn't call everyone to that, but he's made everyone in his image. But eunuchs were going, you know what? I'm a dry tree, meaning I'll never bear fruit. My life will never be meaningful. I'll never be that full and rich tree. Maybe I'm not part of the house of prayer for all nations. I like how uh, Eugene Peterson interprets this phrase. He says in his translation of, of Isaiah 56.3, make sure no outsider who now follows God ever has occasion to say, God put me in second class and I don't really belong. And make sure no physically mutilated person is ever made to think, I'm damaged goods, I don't really belong. Isaiah and the Lord says to the eunuchs, don't think that about yourself. Don't say that to yourself. Stop it. Because the Lord has something to say to the foreigner, the eunuch, to everyone who feels left out. They're close to his heart. And so verse four, thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You think you don't have a future? I'll personally give you a future in my house. You'll have a monument that will last forever. You'll have a name that will be everlasting. Everything that you desire that you think can only be met through marriage and children, well, I'm gonna meet that desire and more. The Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, he's traveling to Jerusalem. He doesn't really know much about the covenant. He's reading the book of Isaiah on his chariot on his way to worship in Jerusalem going, who is this talking about? I have no idea. Is it Isaiah? Is it someone else? The Lord sends uh, Philip to meet him. The Lord personally directs him to encounter the Ethiopian eunuch on his way to Jerusalem. And the Ethiopians are like, can you explain this book of Isaiah to me? It's kind of confusing. Philip gets on the chariot, goes, yeah, let's look at Isaiah 53 together. This is the suffering servant. He died for your sins. He loves you. And you are invited to be in the house of prayer. And the Ethiopian eunuch was like, he believed. He was spiritually hungry. The Holy Spirit's been working on his heart, softening him up. Philip just comes up and, uh, and like, is like, yeah, well, that's Jesus. And Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, in short, is like, hey, I see water over there. What's preventing me from getting baptized right now? So I was like, I don't know. I mean, I guess we could just, you know. So he baptizes him. And then the Lord's like, okay, Philip, you did your job. Now go back over here. I've got other ministry for you to do. The Ethiopian eunuch got a monument to last forever, a name that is everlasting. He was included in the house of prayer. What about the foreigner who's not born into it? the person who's at the kid's table. They're on the outside looking into the house of prayer. Verse six, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, meaning devotion. They want to be a part of the covenant. 
They want to know what God wants because they want it too. To minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, they're longing. They're longing to be a part of the house of prayer. The Holy Spirit's been working on them. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, meaning obedience to God over the long haul. They don't just have a a momentary sort of spiritual flare-up. They want to keep Sabbath in their life and holds fast my covenant. These, verse 7, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. God promises to bring foreigners to his holy mountain and make them overjoyed. Their burnt offerings, he says, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. They're not just foreigners joined to the house of prayer. They've become priests and ministers in the house of God. They're offering sacrifices. Their sins are being forgiven on the altar of God. There's a rich, tangible, living communion There's joy, there's peace with God and man. For my house, the Lord says, shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Can you hear the Lord insisting on this point? Can you hear him? He's gonna be stubborn about this. He's gonna be stubborn about this. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Stop saying to yourself, I don't belong. Stop saying to yourself, I'm not good enough. Stop saying to yourself, I'm less than human. And stop saying that about other people that you think could never love God like you love God. I refuse to let my covenant become ethnically bound, the Lord says. I refuse to let my house be closed off to people who don't fit the mold. These are, there are people out there, they want to know me. They really do. They're spiritually hungry. They're spiritually ready. I'm not talking about, the Lord seems to be talking about people who have been prepared to know God. The Holy Spirit's been softening them up. And they're kind of, they're looking, they're asking, they're wanting to know. But we would maybe put them in a category of, oh, you, you've got too many problems right now to really say the Apostles' Creed with me. <laughs> I remember once I went to a function uh, several years ago with the expectation of maybe I could be a spiritual resource for people who are also attending this function, that, that maybe, maybe they're longing for God, and the Lord might put me providentially in a conversation with them uh, that, uh, that, would, that would help them take the next step in seeking him out. Well, wouldn't you know it? He didn't. But you know what he did do? He put me in a conversation at this function with someone staffing the event. Someone who was low on the ranking totem pole. Someone who, he had a lot of problems in his life. He was in a relationship, long-term relationship, long-distance relationship. It was really, there's a, circumstances around that was really stressful. He had a lot of anxiety. And it just led naturally, I was just sharing, well, here's how God in Christ has like met me in my anxiety. And here are the spiritual practices that I I'm trying to use and learn to internalize the peace of Christ available through the Father. He was really open. He was really interested. He'd been kind of softened up through suffering, and he wanted to know. And I saw him later, and he told me, I tried that prayer, and it worked. 
but I had this preconceived notion. It's these people that are interested, not the staff people. This is close to the Father's heart. But you know what? It's close to your heart too. I know this because you've shared with me your heart to reach out to other people who are not like us, who are not like the typical Emmanuel Anglican person. This is close to your heart, and I love this about our church. This is close to my heart too. We're burdened who, uh, for people who are not well represented in our congregation on a Sunday morning. People of color, people of other nationalities, people of other cultures, people with disabilities, people who are, who are, who are shut in in their homes or a nursing home, a people who aren't religious, people who don't quite know God. You're burdened and I'm burdened. We see all these people in our city, millions of people. Can't more people who aren't like us become part of a house of prayer for all peoples? So, the question arises, what do we do? What do we stop doing? What do we start doing? Is there a program we could launch to become a house of prayer for all nations? Is there something that the staff could do or Father Aaron could start doing? Is something that you could do or stop doing? A system we could implement? Is there any kind of silver bullet that could make this happen? God made a promise in verse eight of our text. And I think this verse in the word of God is gonna help us wrestle with this question. Perhaps it can be part of your prayers this week. Isaiah 56, eight. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares. Okay, here's a solemn oracle from the mouth of God. I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You could translate this literally, still more I will gather on him to his gathered ones. A little bit more of an awkward expression, but you get the point. We worship a gathering God. We worship a gathering God. He's all over the place in this city, seeking out people who have an open heart to him. God the gatherer is roaming all through Uptown and all through Chicago, looking for people who are looking for him. He's seeking out the stranger that doesn't want to be estranged from God anymore. So if you're burdened for Emmanuel to become a house of prayer for all peoples, seek the heart of the gathering God. Seek the heart of the gathering God. Take verse eight and press him with it. You're a gathering God and you promised to gather people who are not yet gathered. So who are you gathering that's around me, Lord? Open up all my preconceived notions of who it's going to be. Because guess what? The gathering God is probably gonna surprise you just as much as he surprised this white boy. I was so surprised, and so will you be. Who is God gathering around you at your workplace, in your neighborhood? Even people who come to visit this church, people that God gives you favor with, 
that, that, that are longing for God. When you put something out there, they, they respond to it because they're suffering or, or they're hungry. Father, I know you're tracking down people who long for you, and I want to partner with you in finding those people. And when he does, take the church to them. Take the church to them. I was so encouraged a few years ago when, first off, Aaron Sanga led a group of us to do surveys in Uptown for what people were open to spiritually. What would they want? And one of the things that people mentioned was Bible studies. I would love to learn the Bible. And so Susan Radicke then, our equipping pastor, started a Bible study with some of you and started holding it in homes and, and places in Uptown taking people through a six-week study of the Bible, going into the neighborhood with flyers first, hey, we have a neighborhood Bible study going, as well as with gatherings. And do you know what the Lord did? He brought people who were hungry for God. There's a place, there's a Salvation Army has a residential center less than a half a mile from here. And people who were staying there saw the sign, Community Bible Study, and they're like, we've been looking for a church, maybe we could go to this Bible study. They found their way into it. They were spiritually hungry. They were without a church. They wanted their kids to know God. They wanted to be reconnected to God. And for the time being that they lived in Uptown, they were a part of our church. We got to worship with them. We got to pray with them. We got to experience their joy. It was so incredible. And it was so sad when they, it was happy sad. They got permanent housing. and We, we celebrated that, but we also had to say goodbye. The Lord has done it before right here, and he can do it again. I imagine that Moravians of 1727 were a pretty homogenous group. They were all from Moravia, after all. Uh, and they weren't very large, pretty much our size, so how did they become a house of prayer for all nations? You know what they did is they started seeking the heart of the gathering God. A few months after the Moravian Pentecost, that happened in May, so fast forward to August of that same year, 24 men and 24 women felt compelled to keep a prayer watch for a day straight, two by two for an hour at a time, like a relay race from midnight to midnight. And they're like, let's just come together. Let's come to the house of God and let's pray nonstop. We'll, two of us will pray for an hour, then you'll come and, and it'll just be a straight day of prayer. Let's just seek the face of God in prayer. And so they did that. And at the end of the 24 hours, others started trickling in and kept it going, kept the relay going. And a, and a day turned into a whole week of prayer. Constant, straight, 24-7. Well, then a week turned into a month of prayer without any break. And then a month turned into several months, and then it became a year of straight-up prayer 24-7. Let me tell you this. They prayed for 100 years straight without stopping. And do you know what happened among the Moravians that prayed and sought the face of the living God? The Holy Spirit spoke a word to them in the midst of their prayer gathering uh, that, quote, those in, uh, the, a revelation that they should reach those in the world for whom no one cared. 
And then they had their mission. The gathering God was like, all right, I want you to start seeking out those all over the world that no one cares about. So out of this prayer came uh, hundreds and hundreds of Moravian Christians going all over the world. They went to the Caribbean. They went to Africa. They went to South America. They went to the Arctic. They went to Greenland. I'm not kidding. Who goes to Greenland? Moravians who pray. They went to the American Midwest. And they became a house of prayer for all nations. For them, it meant scattering and finding the people. The impact of the Moravians is still being felt. It is likely that you and I have been spiritually impacted in some way. It may be true that you and I know Jesus Christ because the Moravians sought the heart of the gathering God and went forth and found the people that the gathering God was seeking. You know, for all of that heritage, you and I, we could become a house of pettiness. We could become a house of bickering and fighting and nitpicking over over little petty things. All of us are capable of that. But by God's grace, we can also become a house of prayer for all nations. So let's devote ourselves to prayer like the Moravians. Let's seek God's face in the month of August. And you'll have a chance to pray during the prayers of the people and other times as well in August. Let's ask for his Holy Spirit. Let's confess our sins to each other. Maybe you have some bitterness. Maybe you have an, like an unconfessed sin between someone here. It is time to make that right. Make it right now. Let's make this a time of devotion. Let's make this a time of seeking the heart of God. Let's love one another with greater tenderheartedness. Let's outdo one another with love and good deeds. And let's seek those whom God is seeking. Let's seek those who are seeking God. That is God's call for us. That is his sacred oracle. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. He insists. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.